Chapter Seventeen of With Clive in India. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gary Ullman. The Capture of Garia. After having sat for an hour under the shade of some trees and partaken of luncheon, the party again moved forward on their elephants to the jungle. The watchers declared that no sound whatever had been heard during their absence, nor did the discharge of fireworks, which at once recommenced, elicit the slightest response. After this had gone on for half an hour, Charlie, convinced that the animal was dead, dismounted from his elephant. He had with him a heavy double-barrel rifle of the Rajas, and Hussein carrying a similar weapon and a curved Tulwar, which was sharpened almost to a razor edge, prepared to follow immediately behind him. The three or four of the most courageous shikaris with cocked guns followed in Hussein's steps. Holding his gun advanced before him in readiness to fire instantly, Charlie entered the jungle at the point where the tiger had retreated into it. Drops of blood spotted the grass and the bent and twisted brushwood showed the path that the tiger had taken. Charlie moved as noiselessly as possible. The path led straight forward towards the rocks behind, but it was not until within four or five yards of this that any sound of the tiger could be seen. Then the brushes were burst asunder, and the great yellow body hurled itself forward upon Charlie. The attack was so sudden and instantaneous that the latter had not even time to raise his rifle to his shoulder. Almost instinctively, however, he discharged both of the barrels, but was at the same moment hurled to the ground where he lay crushed down by the weight of the tiger, whose hot breath he could feel on his face. He closed his eyes, only to open them again at the sound of a heavy blow while a deluge of hot blood flowed over him. He heard Husan's voice and then became insensible. When he recovered, he found himself lying with his head supported by Hussein outside the jungle. Is he dead? he asked faintly. He is dead, Sahib, Hussein replied. Let the Sahib drink some brandy and he will be strong again. Charlie drank some brandy and water, which Hussein held to his lips. Then the latter raised him to his feet Charlie felt his limbs and his ribs. He was bruised all over, but otherwise unhurt. The blood which covered him having flowed from the tiger. One of the balls which he had fired had entered the tiger's neck. The other had broken one of its forelegs, and Charlie had been knocked down by the weight of the animal, not by the blow of its formidable paw. Hossein had sprung forward on the instant, and with one blow of his sharp tulwar had shorn clear through skin and muscle and bone and had almost severed the tiger's head from its body it was the weight upon him which had crushed charlie into a state of insensibility here he had lain for four or five minutes before hussein could get the frightened natives to return and assist him to lift the great carcass from his master's body upon examination it was found that two of the three bullets first fire to take an effect. One had broken the tiger's shoulder and lodged in his body. The other had struck him fairly on the chest and had passed within an inch or two of his heart. I thought 
Ramajee Punt said, as he viewed the body, that one of his legs must have been rendered useless. That was why he lay quiet so long, in spite of our efforts to turn him out. Charlie was too much hurt to walk, and a litter was speedily formed, and he was carried back to the camp where his arrival in that state excited the most lively lamentations on the part of Tim. The next morning he was much recovered, and was able, in the cool of the evening, to take his place in the howdah, and to return to the camp before Garia. A few days later, the fleet made its appearance off the town, and the same evening, Tulagi and Giria rode up to Ramajay Punt's camp. Charlie was present at the interview, at which Angria endeavored to prevail on Ramajay Punt and Charlie to accept a large ransom for his fort, offering them each great presents, if they would do their utmost to prevail on Admiral Watson and Colonel Clive to agree to accept it. Charlie said at once that he was sure it was useless, that the English had now made a great effort to put a stop to the ravages which he and his father before him had for so many years inflicted upon their commerce, and that he was sure that nothing short of the total destruction of the fort and fleet would satisfy them. The meeting then broke up and charlie supposing that angria would return immediately went back to his tent where he directed hossein at once to mingle with the men who had accompanied angria and to find out anything that he could concerning the state of things in the fort hussein returned an hour later sahib he said ramajee punt is thinking of cheating the english he is keeping angria a prisoner he says that he came into his camp without asking for his safe conduct and that therefore he shall detain him but this is not all angria has left his brother in command of the fort and ramajee by threatening angria with instant execution has induced him to send an order to deliver the fort at once to him ramajee wants you see sahib to get all the plunder of the fort for himself and his mahrattas this is very serious charlie said and i must let the admiral know at once what is taking place when it became dark charlie with tim and hussein made his way through the mahratta camp down to the shore of the river here were numbers of boats hauled up on the sand one of the lightest of these was soon got into the water and rowed gently out into the force of the stream then the oars were shipped and they lay down perfectly quiet in the boat and drifted past the fort without being observed when they once gained the open sea the oars were placed in the rowlocks and half an hour's rowing brought them alongside the fleet charlie was soon on board the flagship and informed the admiral and colonel clive what hossein had heard it was at once resolved to attack upon the following day the two officers did not think it was likely that the pirates would even in obedience to their chief's orders surrender the place until it had been battered by the fleet the next morning the fort was summoned to surrender no answer was received and as soon as the sea breeze set in in the afternoon the fleet weighed anchor and proceeded towards the mouth of the river 
the men of war were in line on the side nearest to the fort to protect the mortar vessel and smaller ships from its fire passing the point of the promontory they stood into the river and anchored at a distance of fifty yards from the north face of the fort a gun from the admiral's ship gave the signal and a hundred and fifty pieces of cannon at once opened fire while the mortar vessels threw shell into the fort and town in ten minutes after the fire began a shell fell into one of angria's large ships and set her on fire the flames soon spread to the others fastened together on either side of her and in less than an hour this fleet which had for fifty years been the terror of the malabar coast was utterly destroyed in the meantime the fleet kept up their fire with the greatest vigor upon the enemy's works and before nightfall the enemy fire was completely silenced no white flag however was hung up and the admiral had little doubt that it was intended to surrender the place to the maharattas as soon therefore as it became quite dark colonel clive landed with the troops and took up a position between the maharattas and the fort where to his great disappointment and disgust rama j punt found him in the morning the admiral again summoned the fort declaring that he would renew the attack and give no quarter unless it was surrendered immediately the governor sent back to beg the admiral to cease from hostilities until next day as he was only waiting for orders from angria to surrender angria declared that he had already sent the orders at four in the afternoon therefore the bombardment was renewed and in less than half an hour a white flag appeared above the wall as however the garrison made no further sign of surrender and refused to admit colonel clive with his troops when he advanced to take possession the bombardment was again renewed more vigorously than ever the enemy was unable to support the violence of the fire and soon shouted over the walls to clive that they surrender and he might enter and take possession he had once marched in and the pirates laid down their arms and surrendered themselves prisoners it was found that a great part of the fortifications had been destroyed by the fire but a resolute garrison might have held the fort itself against a long siege two hundred guns fell into the hands of the captors together with great quantities of ammunition and stores of all kinds the money and effects amounted to a hundred and twenty thousand pounds which was divided among the captors the rest of angria's fleet among them two large ships on the stocks were destroyed ramajay punt sent parties of his troops to attack the other forts held by the pirates these however surrendered without resistance and thus the whole country which the pirates had held for seventy years fell again into the hands of the Mahrattas from whom they had wrested it admiral watson and the fleet then returned to bombay in order to repair the damages which had been inflicted upon them during the bombardment there were great rejoicings upon their arrival there the joy of the inhabitants both european and native being immense at the destruction of the formidable pirate colonies which had so long ravaged the seas 
after the repairs were completed the fleet with the troops which had formed the expedition were to sail for madras charlie however did not wait for this but finding that one of the company's ships would sail in the course of a few days after the return to bombay he obtained leave from colonel clyde to take a passage in her and to proceed immediately to madras tim and hussein of course accompanied him and the voyage down the west coast of india and round ceylon was performed without any marked incident when within but a few hours of madras the barometer fell rapidly great clouds rose up upon the horizon and the captain ordered all hands aloft to reduce sail we are in he said for a furious tempest it is the breaking up of the monsoon it is a fortnight earlier than usual i had hoped that we should have got safely up the hoogly before it began half an hour later the hurricane struck them and for the next three days the tempest was terrible great waves swept over the ships and every time that the captain attempted to show a rag of canvas it was blown from the boat ropes the ship however was a stout one and weathered the gale upon the fourth morning the passengers who had during the tempest been battened below came on deck the sky was bright and clear and the waves were fast going down a good deal of sail was already set and the hands were at work to repair the damages well captain charlie said to that officer i congratulate you on the behavior of the ship it has been a tremendous gale and she has weathered it stoutly yes captain marryat she has done well i have only once or twice been out in so severe a storm since i came to sea and where are we now charlie asked looking round the horizon when shall we be at madras well the captain said with a smile i am afraid that you must give up all idea of seeing madras just at present we have been blown right up the bay and are only a few hours sail from the mouth of the hoogly i have a far larger cargo for that place than the madras and it would be a pure waste of time for me to put back now i intend therefore to go to calcutta first discharge and fill up there and then touch at madras on my way back i suppose it makes no great difference to you no indeed charlie said and i am by no means sorry of the opportunity of getting a glimpse of calcutta which i might never otherwise have done i believe things are pretty quiet at the madras at present and i have been so long away now that a month or two sooner or later will make but little difference a few hours later charlie noticed a change in the color of the sea the mud-stained water of the hoogly discoloring the bay of bengal far out from its mouth the voyage up was a tedious one at times the wind fell altogether and unable to stem the stream the ship lay for days at anchor the yellow tide running swiftly by it the saints preserve us mr charles did you ever see the like tim kelly exclaimed there's another dead body floating down towards us and that is the eighth i've seen this morning are the poor heathen creatures all committing suicide together 
not at all tim charlie said the hooghly is one of the sacred rivers of india and the people on its banks insist instead of burying their dead put them into the river and let them drift away i calls it a bastardly custom your honor and i wonder it is allowed one got a thought the cable this morning and it frightened me right out of my senses when i happened to look over the bow and saw the thing bobbing up and down in the water this is tedious work your honor and i'll be glad when we're at the end of the voyage i shall be glad too time we have been a fortnight in the river already but i think there is a breeze getting up and there is the captain on deck giving orders in a few minutes the ship was under way again and the same night dropped her anchor in the stream abreast of calcutta charlie shortly after landed and proceeded to the company's offices reported his arrival and that of the four sepoy officers who seen who was not in the company's service was with him merely in the character of a servant as the news of the share charlie had had in the captain of suwandrug had reached calcutta he was well received and one of the leading merchants of the town mr haines who happened to be pressed when charlie called upon the governor at once invited him warmly to take up his residence with him during his stay hospitality in india was profuse and general hotels were unknown and a stranger was always treated as a honorable guest charlie therefore had no hesitation whatever in accepting the offer the four native officers were quartered in the barracks and returning on board ship charlie followed by tim and hossein and by some coolies bearing his luggage was soon on his way to the bungalow of mr haines on his way he was surprised at the number and size of the dwellings of the merchants and officials which offered a very strong contrast to the quiet and unpretending buildings round the fort of madras the house of mr haines was a large one and stood in a large and carefully kept garden mr haines received him at the door and at once led him to his room which was spacious cool and airy outside was a wide veranda upon which in accordance with the customs of the country servants would sleep here is your bathroom mr haines said pointing to an adjoining room i think you will find everything ready we dine in half an hour charlie was soon in his bath a luxury which in india every european indulged in at least twice a day then in his cool white suit which at that time formed the regular evening dress he found his way to the drawing-room here he was introduced to the merchant's wife and to his daughter a girl of some thirteen years old as well as to several guests who had arrived for dinner the meal was a pleasant one and charlie's after being cooped up for some weeks on board ship enjoyed it much a dinner in india is to one unaccustomed to it a striking sight the puka waving slowly to and fro overhead drives the cool air which comes in through the open window down into the table 
each guest brings his own servant who either in white or colored robes and in turbans of many different hues and shapes according to the wearer's caste stands behind his master's chair the light is always a soft one and the table richly garnished with bright colored tropical flowers charlie was the hero of the hour and was asked many questions concerning the capture of suwanna drug and also about the defense of ambor which though now an old story had excited the greatest interest through india presently however the conversation turned to local topics and charlie learned from the anxious looks and earnest tones of the speakers that the situation was considered a very serious one he asked but few questions then but after the guests had retired mr haines proposed to him to smoke one more quiet cigar in the cool of the veranda before retiring to bed he took the opportunity of asking his hosts to explain to him the situation with which he had no previous acquaintance up to the death of alec Curdy, the old viceroy of bengal on the ninth april we were on good terms with our native neighbors calcutta had not been like madras threatened by the rivalry of a european neighbor the french and dutch indeed have both trading stations like our own but none of us had taken part in native affairs alec curdie had been all-powerful there have been no native troubles and therefore no reason for our interference we have just gone on as for many years previously as a purely trading company at his death he was succeeded in the government by suraja daula his grandson i suppose in all india there is no prince with a worse reputation than this young scoundrel has gained for himself for profligacy and cruelty he is constantly drunk and is surrounded by a crew and reprobates as wicked as himself at the death of ali Curdie, sokut jung another grandson of ali set up in opposition to him and the new viceroy raised a large force to march against him as the reputation of the sukut jung was as infamous as that of his cousin it would have made little difference to us which of the two obtained the mastery within the last few days however circumstances have occurred which have completely altered the situation the town of dhaka was about a year ago placed under the governorship of raja ragbulibub a hindu officer in high favor with ali kurdi his predecessor had been assassinated and plundered by order of, of suraja daula and when he heard of the ascension of that prince he determined at once to fly as he knew that his great wealth would speedily cause him to be marked out as a victim he therefore obtained a letter of recommendation from mr watts the agent of the company at their factory at kosim bazaar and sent his son kissendas with a large retinue his family and treasures to calcutta two or three days after his accession suraja daula 
dispatched a letter to mr drake our governor ordering him to surrender kissendas and the treasures immediately the man whom he sent down arrived in a small boat without any state or retinue and mr drake believing that he was an impostor paid no attention to the demand but expelled him from the settlement two days ago a letter came from the viceroy or as we generally call him the nabob to mr drake ordering him instantly to demolish all the fortifications which he understood he had been erecting mr drake had sent word back assuring the nabob that he is erecting no new fortifications but simply executing some repairs in the ramparts facing the river in view of the expected war between england and france that is all that has been done at present but seeing the passionate and overbearing disposition of this young scoundrel there is no saying what will come of it but how do we stand here charlie asked what are the means of defence supposing he should take it into his head to march with the army which he has raised to fight against his cousin to the attack of calcutta that is all that has been done at present but seeing the passionate and overbearing disposition of this young scoundrel there is no saying what will come of it but how do we stand here charlie asked what are the means of defence supposing he should take it into his head to march with the army nothing could be worse than our position mr haines said ever since the capture of madras nine years ago the directors have been sending out orders that this place should be put in a state of defence during the fifty years which have passed peacefully here the fortification have been entirely neglected instead of the space around them being kept clear warehouses have been built close against them and the fort is wholly unable to resist any attack the authorities of the company here have done absolutely nothing to carry out the orders from home they think i am sorry to say only of making money with their own trading ventures and although several petitions have been presented to them by the merchants here urging upon them the dangers which might arise at the death of ali they have taken no steps whatever and indeed have treated all warnings with scorn and derision what force have we here charlie asked only a hundred and seventy-four men of whom the greater portion are natives what sort of man is your commander we have no means of knowing mr haines said his name is minchin he is a great friend of the governor's and has certainly done nothing to counteract the apathy of the authorities altogether to my mind things look as bad as they possibly can a week later on the sixteenth of june a messenger arrived with news that the nabob with fifty thousand men was advancing against the town and that in two days he would appear before it all was confusion and alarm charlie at once proceeded to the fort and placed his services at the disposal of captain minchin he found that officer fussy and unalarmed if i might be permitted to advise 
Charlie said, every available man in town should be set to work at once, pulling down all the buildings around the walls. It would be clearly impossible to defend the place when the ramparts are on all sides commanded by the musketry fire of surrounding buildings. I know what my duty is, sir, Captain Minchin said, and do not require to be taught it by so very young an officer as yourself. Very well, sir, Charlie replied calmly. I have seen a great deal of service and have taken part in the defense of two besieged towns while you, I believe, have never seen a shot fired. However, as you are in command, you will, of course, take what steps you think fit, but I warn you that unless these buildings are destroyed, the fort cannot resist an assault for 24 hours. Then, bowing quietly, he retired and returned to Mr. Haines's house. That gentleman was absent, having gone to the governor's. He did not come back until late in the evening. Charlie passed the time in endeavoring to cheer up Mrs. Haines and her daughter, assuring them that if the worst came to the worst, there could be no difficulty in their getting on board ship. Mrs. Hades was a woman of much common sense and presence of mind, and under the influence of Charlie's quiet chat, she speedily recovered her tranquility. Her daughter Ada, who was a very bright and pretty girl, was even sooner at her ease, and they were laughing and chatting brightly when Mr. Haines arrived. He looked fagged and dispirited. Drake is a fool, he said, just as hitherto he has scoffed at all thought of danger. Now he is prostrated at the news that danger is at hand. He can decide on nothing. At one moment he talks of sending messengers to Suraja Dowla to offer to pay any sum he may demand in order to induce him to retire. The next, he talks of defending the fort to the last. We can get him to give no orders, to decide on nothing, and the other officials are equally impotent and imbecile. On the 18th, the army of the Nabob approached. Captain Minchin took his guns and troops a considerable distance beyond the walls and opened fire upon the enemy. Charlie, enraged and disgusted at the folly of conduct which could only lead to defeat, marched with them as a simple volunteer. The result was what he had anticipated. The enemy opened fire with an immensely superior force of artillery. His infantry advanced, and clouds of horsemen swept around the flanks and menaced the retreat. In a very few minutes, Captain Minchin gave the order to retire, and abandoning the guns, the English force retreated in all haste to the town. Charlie had, on setting out, told Mr. Haynes what was certain to occur, and had implored him to send all his valuables at once on board ship and to retire instantly into the fort. Upon the arrival of the troops at the gate, they found it almost blocked, with the throng of frightened Europeans and natives flying from their houses 
beyond it to its protection scarcely were all the fugitives within and the gates closed when the guns of suraja dowla opened upon the fort and his infantry taking possession of the houses around it began a galling musketry fire upon the ramparts captain michigan remained closeted with the governor and charlie finding the troops bewildered and dismayed without leading or orders assumed the command placed them upon the walls and kept up a vigorous musketry fire in reply to that of the enemy within all was confusion and dismay in every spot sheltered from the enemy's fire europeans and natives were huddled together there was neither head nor direction with nightfall the fire ceased but still mr drake and captain minchkin were undecided what steps to take at two o'clock in the morning they summoned a council of war at which charlie was present and it was decided that the women and children should at once be sent on board they should have been no difficulty in carrying this into effect a large number of merchantmen were lying in the stream opposite the fort capable of conveying away in safety the whole of the occupants two of the members of the council had early in the evening been dispatched on board ship to make arrangements for the boats being sent on shore but these cowardly wrenches instead of doing so ordered the ships to raise their anchors and drop two miles further down the stream the boats, however, were set up the river to the fort. The same helpless imbecility which had characterized every movement again showed itself. There was no attempt whatever at establishing anything like order or method. The water gate was opened and a wild rush of men, women, and children took place down to the boats. Charlie was on duty on the walls. He had already said good-bye to Mrs. Haynes and her daughter, and though he heard shouts and screams coming from the water gate, he had no idea what had taken place until Mr. Haynes joined him. "'Have you seen them safely off?' Charlie asked. "'My wife is gone, Mr. Haynes. My daughter is still here. There has been a terrible scene of confusion.' although the boats were amply sufficient to carry all no steps whatever has been taken to secure order the consequence was there was a wild rush women and children were knocked down and trampled upon they leaped into the boats in such wild haste that several of these were capsized and numbers of people drowned i kept close to my wife and child till we reached the side of the stream I managed to get my wife into a boat, and then a rush of people separated me from my daughter, and before I could find her again, the remaining boats had all pushed off. Many of the men had gone with them, and among them, I am ashamed to say, several of the officers. However, I trust the boats will come up again tomorrow and take away the rest. Two have remained, a guard having been placed over them, and I hope to get Ada off to her mother in the morning. Towards morning, Mr. Haynes again joined Charlie. 
What do you think? He said, those cowardly villains, Drake and Minchin, have taken the two boats and gone off on board ship. Impossible, Charlie exclaimed. It is too true, Mr. Haines said. The names of these cowards should be held as infamous as long as the English nation exists. Come now. We are just assembling to choose a commander. Mr. Peaks is the senior agent, but I think we shall elect Mr. Holwell, who is an energetic and vigorous man. It was as Mr. Haynes had expected. Mr. Holwell was elected and at once took the lead. He immediately assigned to Charlie, the commander of the troops. Little was done at the council, beyond speaker after speaker, raising to express his excreation of the conduct of the governor and Captain Minchin. With daybreak, the enemy's fire recommenced. All day long, Charlie hurried from post to post, encouraging his men and aiding in working the guns. Two or three times when the enemy showed in masses as if intending to assault, the fire of the artillery drove them back, and up to nightfall they had gained but little success. The civilians as well as the soldiers had done their duty nobly, but the loss had been heavy. From the fire of the enemy sharpshooters in the surrounding buildings, and it was evident that, however gallant a defense, the fort could not much longer resist. All day long, signals had been kept flying for the fleet two miles below to come up to the fort, but although these could be plainly seen, not a ship weighed anchor. End of chapter 17